You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I went to an Oscars trivia event this week, which was super fun. And, you know, always love a chance to be a know-it-all. If you're listening to this on release day, today is my Super Bowl, or as my friends call it. Yes, it is Oscar Sunday. It's airing on ABC if you live in the States at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. If you're not in the States, I don't know, Google it. I'm doing something super cool today if you're listening to this on release day, which I'll tell you all about next week. So in the spirit of my probably third favorite holiday, that's not a holiday, I'm going to rank the 10 Best Picture nominees from best to worst. Got them all watched in the nick of time, so the last one, Thursday night. This is just my opinion, by the way, not whom I think is going to win, because who I want to win never wins, so... Yeah. And honestly, not really sure who's going to even win this year. It's a it's a quite the grab bag of a year. So let's start with my least favorite. Go to my most favorite. And my least favorite is probably the only one out of these 10 I legitimately didn't like. I love Guillermo del Toro, but I despise Nightmare Alley. It lacked his typical polish, and the storytelling was so sloppy. If this had been a different director, I would have given some of the things I thought were wrong with this movie a pass, but he's too experienced of a filmmaker for how poor the storytelling and the pace of this film was. I just... The fact that this got a nomination over Tick, Tick, Boom still ruffles my feathers. Ninth, The Power of the Dog. Just didn't do it for me. Is it a good film? Absolutely, yes. Will I ever watch it again? Highly unlikely. I don't think the Academy voters really give the rewatchability of a film like the consideration it deserves when determining the quality of a film or what the best is. If you never really want to watch something again, can you call it the best? Eh, debatable. Eighth, Drive My Car. Fantastic movie, but it was kind of like Power of the Dog for me. It was a powerful film, powerful storytelling, but I'm not likely to seek this film out again. It's also three hours long, so that's not helping it either. It is a lock for Best Foreign Film, though, as it got a Best Picture nomination. That's pretty much a guarantee. Seventh, we've got Don't Look Up, which I know is at the bottom of a lot of people's lists. But unlike the previous three, I would willingly watch this one again. I think this film was marketed poorly, and that's why people hated on it. I thought it was great. Not the best, but still better than the previous three. Sixth, Dune. Like I said in my review months ago, Dune is half of a movie and feels like half of a movie. It has absolutely no chance in hell of winning Best Picture, but this thing is going to sweep the technical awards. I like the half of a movie that this movie was, but I can't get over the fact that it didn't feel like a full story. Fifth, West Side Story. It was gorgeous, and the acting was top drawer, and Ariana DeBose deserves the Oscar she's very likely going to get on Sunday. But at the end of the day, it's a remake, and I'd rather save the top spots for films that I haven't seen in any form before. Like fourth, Licorice Pizza. This film was weird and hip and weird and a little messed up, but I loved it. 
fourth. Third is the last of the films I saw out of the 10 nominees, Belfast. I really like this movie and how it showed a very adult and scary period in Ireland's history through the eyes and experiences of a child. Also, the cinematography for this film was unmatched by anything I've seen this year. I don't know if, I can't remember if it's nominated for cinematography. If it is, it's probably going to lose to Dune because Dune's going to win all the technical awards most likely, but it should be Belfast. Second, King Richard. I love this movie. I loved Will Smith in it. And I thought this was a strong film that did not get the attention it deserved when it released. And my favorite of the 10 was Coda. I loved it. I thought it was a gorgeous film with a beautiful story. The ending made me cry and I rarely cry in movies. Plus any film that allows me to use a language I'm semi-fluent in, yes, I know conversational sign language, though I am a little rusty admittedly, is always a thrill. Will it win? It won the SAG, so it has a chance. But I think the old codgers that are the majority of the Academy voters, despite the influx of new members, will likely pick a studio film. I don't think we're yet at a point where Academy voters are going to legitimize the streaming platform movies with the top prize. Based on that and what I saw and how I know they tend to vote, if I were to wager a guess on what will win, it'll either be Belfast, which is Focus Features, which is owned by Universal, or King Richard, which is Warner Brothers, or even Licorice Pizza, which was produced by MGM and Focus Features and a few other smaller production companies. But I could be wrong. Maybe this is the streamer's year. Never would have guessed that Apple TV might actually be the first to win it, though. But, you know, we'll know by the end of today if you're listening to this on Sunday. Now that I've, you know, rattled on for like five plus minutes, on to this week's topic. This week, one of the only silent film stars to not only transition to the talkies, but to have something incredibly rare in Hollywood for a performer. A long, illustrious career. Her name was Lillian Gish, and she was a force to be reckoned with. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Sometimes a fire can mean destruction, sometimes renewal. When the Gish family was forced to move from Oklahoma to New York City after a fire destroyed their main source of income, the family reconnected with friends they'd made while touring in the theater. One of these friends just so happened to be in the process of becoming a very famous actress, and in an act of generosity, introduced her friends to one of the most prolific directors of the era. What happened next was a career that would span nearly a century. Lillian Diana Gish was born in Springfield, Ohio, on October 14, 1893, in her paternal grandmother's house. Lillian's father was an alcoholic and was banished from the family by his wife after failing to launch several businesses in several states, including Maryland and New York, and then refusing to get a job. So Lillian's mother took up acting to support the family and refused to let her daughters think negatively about their father. The family moved around quite a bit, eventually making it to East St. Louis, Missouri, to live with Lillian's aunt and uncle. Their mother opened the Majestic Candy Kitchen, and the girls helped sell popcorn and candy to patrons of the old Majestic Theater located next door. Before settling in St. Louis, though, Lillian had made her stage debut in 1902 at the Little Red Schoolhouse in Ohio. From 1903 to 1904, she toured in her first false step with her mother and sister Dorothy. 
1905, she danced with a Sarah Bernhardt production in New York City. Lillian's mother, whom she loved fiercely, was not super stoked on her children entering into the ragtag profession of acting, but it was a necessity for the family's financial security. Their mother believed that a woman should only have her name published three times in the newspaper in her lifetime. Her birth, her marriage, and her death. As a result, both Lillian and Dorothy were credited as baby something or other in the theater playbills like Baby Alice, Baby Mary, what have you, in those early stage gigs. In 1910, when Lillian was 13 and living with a different aunt, she received news that her father was dying in an institution for the insane. She went to visit him and in doing so rekindled her relationship with him. He would unfortunately die two years later before the age of 30. Then, the theater next to the candy store burned down, and the family chose New York as their new home. When Lillian and Dorothy were old enough, they joined the theater, often traveling separately in different productions. Lillian also posed for artist Victor Marl in exchange for voice lessons. Some luck would factor into their futures as the family would reconnect with Charlotte Smith, whom had a daughter that was an aspiring actress named Gladys Smith. Well, Gladys had recently been rechristened Mary Pickford and was working for a director named D.W. Griffith at Biograph Studios. Lillian, Dorothy, and Mary soon became very close friends, and in 1912, she introduced the sisters to Griffith and helped them get contracts. In fact, the day he met them, he cast them in a crowd scene for a film that was being shot that day. The payment for the day was $5 each, which was a lot of money for them at the time. When they were done, D.W. Griffith auditioned them to work for him full-time. Lillian was 19, but would be telling casting directors she was 16. Lillian's transition to the pictures was a slow one, as she had been more apprehensive to join the pictures full-time. Remember, this was considered the basic bitch gig of acting, and basically guaranteed that you were a sellout. As a result of this hesitation, Dorothy followed D.W. Griffith West to Hollywood while Lillian continued to perform on the stage. But in 1913, during a performance, she collapsed. Turns out she had very severe anemia. The producer of the play, David Belasco, sent her West. Being with her sister and her mother again in the California sunshine seemed to do the trick, and Lillian quickly recovered. Lillian's habit of suffering for her art to the extreme would continue throughout her career. For example, she got neuropathy in several of her fingers while floating down the river on a sheet of ice for a film, and before shooting her death scene in La Boheme, Lillian reportedly did not eat or drink anything for three days beforehand, scaring the shit out of the director who thought he was actually going to film Lillian's death scene instead of her characters. Appearing in over 25 films in her first two years as a film actress, Lillian became a major star, becoming known as the first lady of American cinema. Lillian was working extensively with Griffith at this time, whom was testing the length of what a film could be. At this time, most, if not all, films were 8 to 12 minutes or one reel in length. Griffith made a two-reeler as an experiment, and Biograph was cool with that, like 16 to 24 minutes, okay. But then he made a four-reeler, which meant that it was like 40 minutes at length at the most. And then they fired him because they believed that they wasted, that, that Griffith wasted their money on something that nobody was going to be able to sit and focus on. 40 minutes? Crazy. So naturally, he set out to make a film that was 12 reels long. This, of course, was Birth of a Nation, and our dear Lillian Gish became one of its stars. Turned out, people would sit through a 12 reel film. This was the birth of the feature-length movie as we know them today. 
Lillian would also become a muse of sorts to D.W. Griffith. Griffith was drawn to her expressive talents, developing her into a suffering yet strong heroine. After the super racist Birth of a Nation of 1915, Lillian appeared in his film Intolerance, which released in 1916, which I couldn't find the real count for, but the film is over three hours long. So many, many reels. The scope of this film is massive, even by today's standards. If you've seen Cloud Atlas from a few years ago, the way this film is told is actually quite similar to that. Intolerance consists of four distinct but parallel stories, which intercut with increasing frequency as the film and its four stories builds to their respective climaxes. The goal of the film was to show humanity's constant intolerance throughout their whole history, aka we've always been assholes to each other. The film covers approximately 2,500 years, starting with the fall of Babylon from 589 BC, then a story involving the crucifixion of Jesus, then to 1572 to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France, and finally to what was then modern-day America, and that story dealt with workers not being paid their worth due to greedy capitalists. Lillian played the eternal motherhood, who could be seen in scenes rocking a baby, which acted as a transition between the plot lines. Due to this film's crazy-ass length, Griffin would have to severely edit down the film as no theater would take it. Lillian would claim that this ruined the picture. According to her, it is the best film that was ever made. I don't have an opinion because not going to lie, this one has been on my watch list for a very long time, I, but I've still not seen it in its entirety because it's three hours long and it's a silent movie. And as a modern film watcher, my brain, for me, that's very hard to do. Rumors flew for decades as to the nature of Griffith and Lillian's relationship, something Lillian never confirmed nor denied to anyone. People close to them had suspicions, but nobody caught anybody with their pants down. The two were incredibly close. There was no denying that. In interviews, she speaks about him at length, and you can hear the passionate feelings she carried for him decades after his death. In fact, in a documentary about her life, she talks about him extensively for like a good third of it. As far as a public personal life goes, Lillian herself never married nor had any children. Lillian and Griffith teamed up again for the 1920 film Way Down East. She played a woman in a sham marriage. It was on this film that she jacked up her hands floating in the frozen river. She would describe it as sticking her hand in fire. She also, during that same scene, almost went over a freaking cliff, which would have been caught on camera had her scene partner not grabbed her in the nick of time. In an odd move for the day, Lillian directed her sister Dorothy in remodeling her husband in 1920 when Griffith was working out of town. He thought the crew would work harder for a girl. It was a one-off, and Lillian later told reporters at the time that directing was a man's job. Lillian's directorial debut, and I guess finale, is now lost. Also released in 1920 was Lillian's appearance in her final film for Griffith, Orphans in the Storm, which also starred her sister Dorothy. It would be Griffith's last financially successful film. After production wrapped, he urged Lillian to go out on her own and make her own films. She would do this very briefly and made two films in Italy, produced two films in Italy, before returning to Hollywood in 1925. Lillian was soon offered a contract at the newly minted MGM, who promised to give her more creative control over the films she made. MGM's 1926 contract was for six films and offered Lillian $1 million. 
She asked for less money, requesting instead a higher percentage of the back end of the box office instead so that the studio could use the money to increase the quality of her films by hiring the best behind the camera talent. When Lillian arrived on the back lot for her first day, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, requested to meet with the girl that started him on his way to fame and fortune. Lillian was confused as she'd never met Mr. Mayer before. You see, Louis B. Mayer had pawned nearly everything he'd owned back in 1915, including his wife's wedding ring, to get Birth of a Nation into his New England movie theaters when the film started gaining popularity. Doing this had made Mayer very wealthy, allowing him to eventually become the head of his own movie studio. So yeah, indirectly, Birth of a Nation helped form MGM. Lillian's time as MGM's top actress was a brief one, as she was surpassed by Greta Garbo in the late silent era. How did this happen? Well, the Swedish Garbo had a little scandal with a fellow actor, and everyone flocked to the theaters to see Garbo films. Mayer tried to convince Lillian to do something similar to get into a fake scandal, but Lillian refused. Lillian's time with MGM was very brief. Her contract ended in 1928, but during that time she got to make three films with MGM with near-total creative control. La Boheme, The Scarlet Letter, both which released in 1926, and The Wind from 1928. In each film, and frankly for most of her career, Lillian played very strong, flawed female characters, which is a rarity for this era. She also had her share of the more common, sweet-faced, innocent woman roles, which she referred to as the little virgin gaga baby roles that were boring to play and, in her words, hard to make interesting. Also, fun fact, the only reason Scarlet Letter was allowed to be made was because Lillian wrote all of the major churches and women's clubs, aka the Killjoy associations that got booze taken away during this time, and bitch extensively anytime anybody tried to do anything fun, and demanded that as an American, she should be allowed to make a film based on a book that was taught in schools. The consensus was that they would be cool with the film getting made as long as Lillian had the creative control. Otherwise, Mayer would not have greenlit the project. The Wind was Gish's favorite film of her MGM career, though it was a commercial failure at the time because the talkies were taking over. But the film is now considered one of the best films to come out of the silent era. Despite her loss in popularity due to the rise of the talkies, Lillian was still a respected artist and MGM wanted her to continue her career with them as a talking actress. She didn't stay with MGM, guessing the fake scandal stuff didn't really make her want to stay. Instead, Lillian made two talkies in the early years of sound, in between being on the stage. Her first was One Romantic Night, which she did for United Artists in 1930, and His Double Life in 1933, which she did for Paramount. Then, despite the fact that she could have made it as a talking actress, Lillian went back to the theater for nearly a decade. Back on the stage, Lillian re-established herself as a theater actor and played, as she described it, a lewd Ophelia in Guthrie McClintock's game-changing 1936 production of Hamlet. From 1933 to 1941, Lillian continued developing as an actress, but one on the stage instead of the silver screen. Notable roles during this time included 1930's Uncle Vanya, 1932's Camille, and 1937's The Star Wagon. Lillian returned to the pictures in 1942's Commando Strike at Dawn, a war drama based on a true event that had happened the previous year during World War II. Her next major film role would be 1946's Duel in the Sun, for which Lillian would receive her first and only Academy Award nomination for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. She played Laura Bell McCannell, whom takes in her old sweetheart and second cousin's daughter after a tragedy. 
Her most iconic role of the talkies, and actually the first thing I ever saw her in, was 1955's Night of the Hunter, in which Lillian plays a guardian angel to a group of young children, desperate to escape the clutches of their wicked stepfather, who is a serial killer that targets rich widows for their money in the name of God. It is a magnificent movie if you've never seen it and was insanely underappreciated in its time. In fact, it tanked so hard at the box office that director Charles Lawton never directed again. Then, Lily did something no other actress we've covered this month ever did. In between theater productions and the odd film, Lillian went to television playing one-off weekly character parts in shows like Robert Montgomery Presents and The Love Boat. Her career in TV spanned 30 years from the 1950s to the 1980s. In addition to her acting appearances, Lillian became one of the leading advocates of the lost art of the silent film, often giving speeches and touring with screenings of classic works. She also gave talks to the acting styles of the silent pictures. Though she never received a competitive Oscar, in 1971, Lillian received a Special Academy Award for, quote, superlative artistry and for distinguished contribution to the progress of motion pictures. In 1982, she received a Kennedy Center honor for, quote, a lifetime of artistic achievement. At the age of 93, Lillian appeared in her last film role in 1987's The Whales of August with Vincent Price and Betty Davis. Lillian and Davis starred as elderly sisters living in Maine. At a screening for the film at the Cannes Film Festival, Lillian received a 10-minute standing ovation. Lillian's final professional appearance was a cameo on the 1988 studio recording of Jerome Kern's Showboat, in which she spoke the few lines of the old lady on the levee in the final scene. The last words of Lillian Gish's long, illustrious career were, Good night. Lillian Gish died of heart failure on February 27, 1993, at 99, just eight months shy of her 100th birthday. Her ashes were interred beside her sister Dorothy at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in New York City. Dorothy had passed away in 1968. Lillian's estate was valued at several million dollars at the time of her death, the bulk of which went toward the creation of the Dorothy and Lillian Gish Prize Trust. Each year, the award goes to, quote, a man or woman who has made an outstanding contribution to the beauty of the world and to mankind's enjoyment and understanding of life. Lillian Gish's story is a rare one in Hollywood. She worked steadily throughout her career with little to no scandals and had money in the bank at the end of her life. In the documentary Lillian Gish, An Actor's Life for Me, Lillian states that she never wanted to be rich or own a bunch of houses or fancy cars or jewelry or what have you. She just wanted to leave behind films that she could be proud of that would serve as an everlasting contribution to an art form that she was incredibly passionate and protective of. Well, I'd certainly say Lillian Gish achieved that goal. Now... There was this sneak and no account on King Herod. And when he heard tell of little Jesus growing up, he figured, well, shoot, there won't be no room for the both of us. I'll just nip this in the bud. But he wasn't sure which of all them babies in the land was King Jesus. So that cruel old King Herod figured if he was to kill all the babies in the land, he'd be sure and get little Jesus. And when little King Jesus' mom and pa heard about this plan, what do you reckon they went and done? They hid in the broom closet. They hid in the porch. Mm. No. They went a-running. Well, now, John, you're right. That's just what they done. Little King Jesus' Ma and Pa saddled a mule, and they rode all the way down into Egypt land. Yeah. That's where the queen found him in the billy rushes. Oh, no, that wasn't the same story at all. That was little King Moses. 
But just the same, it did seem like it was a plague time for little ones. Them olden days, them hard, hard times. Figured I was gone, huh? Run, hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, get! What do you want? I want them kids. What do you want them for? That's none of your business, madam. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here. Then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting you. <laughs> Miss Boone, Rachel Cooper, get your state troopers out to my place. I got something trapped in my barn. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. Next month, I'm feeling risky, so we're going to try something a little different. In honor of the Paramount Plus show The Offer, not sponsored, coming out late next month, we're covering director Francis Ford Coppola and a few of his most prolific works and how those films got made. In addition to The Godfather, I have always wanted to do a deep dive on Apocalypse Now. So, what time like the present? So, thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.